A few weeks ago, my dear wife Erin went to a nearby pet store where she picked out and purchased two Chinese dwarf hamsters for my daughters. And I'm telling you this because I want to go on record as having had no part with any of that. (laughs) Nothing to do with it. See, if you know me, you know that rodents are kind of my arch enemy. I mean, and if you've heard me say this before, bats are my nightmare because bats are basically super rodents, right? They fly. And uh, so rodents are my arch enemy, and by some cruel twist of fate, I'm now paying for two of them to live under my roof. I'm the only one in my family that happens to feel this way. My girls were so thrilled. And when they came home from school that day and found these two Chinese dwarf hamsters waiting for them, you can imagine what was going on in our house. Our house was filled with all sorts of shouts of joy and statements that I would consider to be statements of great exaggeration, such as, this is the best day of my life. (laughs) And these are the cutest things I've ever seen. And this is the angriest we've ever seen dad. Things like that, things like that. That might not have been an exaggeration. All of us are guilty of exaggerating at times. We say things like, uh, this is the best day ever. This is the greatest moment of my life. It's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. It's the best sandwich I've ever eaten. And what I want to propose to you this morning may at first sound to you like an overstatement, like an exaggeration, but I believe it to be true, and I'm going to try and make a case for it this morning. And it's simply this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most important event in human history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most important event in human history. And I want to start by pointing out that the ancient Jewish, Roman, and Christian sources that we can find in history, in literature, they all agree that Jesus lived, they all agree that Jesus died, and they all agree that he was buried. There's actually no scholarly debate about that that exists any longer. So somebody tries to debate with you the very existence and life and death and burial of Jesus, that debate doesn't actually exist in scholarly circles. They all agree. Where they begin to differ from each other is what we're talking about this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this morning, we're going to consider the resurrection, and we're going to do it by looking at three things. We're going to look at, first, the problem with the resurrection, then we're going to look at the purpose of the resurrection. And then lastly, this morning, we're going to talk about the power in the resurrection. So this morning's message is based on the text that Joel read for us earlier in Mark chapter 16. But for our purposes, and to really consider the resurrection this morning, we're going to look at a letter that was written about 20 years after the event in question. And we're also going to look at an event that took place just days before Jesus was crucified. Okay, So let's start with the first point this morning, which is the problem with the resurrection. Now, when it comes to being wrong about certain things, some things matter more than others, right? Some things it doesn't really matter that much if you're wrong. How many of you filled out a bracket for the NCAA basketball tournament? Anybody in this room? How's that bracket going? Not great, right? Not great. I had Villanova in the finals, and they're there, but the rest of my bracket's a joke. But it's not a big deal. Like, being wrong about that's not a big deal. Uh, Some of you this afternoon, how many of you this afternoon will have lamb? What? (laughs) We need to stop, and right now I need to do a little presentation about the value and taste of lamb. How many of you have a roast? Anybody have a roast? Some sort of meat? Okay. So uh, my illustration is not going to work very well because nobody's eating lamb. But some of you, if you are making lamb, the, the one favored person in this room that's going to have lamb this afternoon, you might be tempted to intentionally cook your lamb beyond medium rare to medium or medium well or God Almighty forbid, 
well done. <laughs> and listen, I just want to say it's wrong. I mean, it's, it's, it's morally <laughs> wrong. And uh, it's not really a big deal. It's not, I mean, it is a culinary crime, and you may be grieving the heart of God, but, but it's not that big of a deal. Now, there are other things that when you're wrong about them, they are a big deal, like financial investments. If you're wrong with how you invest your money, that can become a big deal. Relationship choices, that can be a big deal. Uh, choosing not to root for God's team, the Yankees, that, that can be a big deal. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, being wrong is a very big deal. Um, and the Apostle Paul, he writes about this about 20 years after the invent in question. We're going to look at this this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the verses will be on the screens for you. Paul's writing a letter to a church in um, Asia Minor in a city called Corinth. And he says this. If Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Jesus Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life then we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Paul uses some pretty clear, strong language to say, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not in fact actually happen, then everything you believe is useless. Everything you staked your life on is useless. And here's what I think Paul is saying, that the resurrection is one of two things. It's either the greatest hoax ever, the biggest joke, the biggest lie ever told and lived out for thousands of years. It's either the greatest hoax ever, or it's the greatest hope ever. And there really isn't a middle ground on this one. If you think it's the greatest hoax and you're wrong, there's so much you'll lose. If you think it's the greatest hope and you're wrong, then you've based your entire life on some sort of a fairy tale or lie. So there is much at stake. Tim Keller talks about this way in his book, The Reason for God. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept everything else he said, right? I mean, I think we could agree on that logic. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, then you sort of have to agree with everything else he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? Who cares what this man said if he didn't do what he said he was going to do? The issue on which everything hangs in the Christian faith is not whether or not you like Jesus' teachings. And some of his teachings are hard for us to hear today. But that's not the issue on which everything hangs. The issue on which everything hangs is whether or not he rose from the dead. And so this morning, as we consider the problem with the resurrection, the problem being that it's either the greatest hoax or the greatest hope, I want to invite you to notice three things with me. Three things that give me, personally, give me confidence in the historicity of the resurrection. And here's the first one. I want you to notice the wide acceptance and use of the gospel accounts. So we're going to start by looking at the gospel accounts. Now, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them mention the resurrection. The gospel of Mark, which we've been studying for the last 13 weeks, was circulating very widely about 20 to 30 years after Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. The, the, the gospel of Mark was being read, shared, and accepted while people who actually saw these events take place were still alive. And what this means is that if it was circulating that quickly, 
and being accepted that soon, there has to be some truth to it. Because 20 to 30 years is far too short a period of time for someone to create a story that crazy and for people to believe it. It's too soon to create a legend, to spin a piece of fiction as sensational as what the Gospels tell us. You need hundreds and hundreds of years to create a legend. You can't create a legend in 20 to 30 years. The other thing when we look at the Gospels is we notice the style of writing. The style of writing is a style that never existed up until that point and really didn't exist after it for another 17 to 1800 years. It's the literary genre of modern detailed fiction where the stories include details that don't advance the plot and aren't necessary for the story. Well, that didn't exist when the Gospels were written. Fiction back then didn't include unnecessary details. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, that, says this. He says, these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, either they are firsthand eyewitness reportage or these first century writers somehow anticipated a style of writing that had never existed previously and wouldn't exist again for 17 to 1800 years. The other thing that when we look at the Gospels that gives us some confidence in them is the counterproductive content in them. And this is what I mean. If you read the Gospels, how do the disciples come across? Not great, right? They're just like you and me, saying the wrong things at the wrong time, bailing on Jesus in his hour of need. Now, if you and I are trying to advance a movement, trying to make up a religion, trying to push a worldview on people, and we were the center of it, because the people who wrote these were the people who were in these stories, if we were doing it, we wouldn't make ourselves look so dumb. We would make ourselves look great. We would make ourselves look impressive. No one writes a story about themselves that makes them look this way. No one would make these things up if they were trying to advance a movement. And they certainly wouldn't include details like the women being the first to the empty tomb because in this culture at this time, a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in court. So the best explanation for the widespread use and acceptance of the gospel accounts is that they are accurately and actually describing real historical events. Okay, the second thing that we need to notice is this. We need to notice the impact on the world, on Jesus' followers, and the subsequent rise of Christianity. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, says this. People who discount the resurrection of Jesus tend to portray the disciples in one of two ways. Either gullible rubes with a weakness for ghost stories, or as shrewd conspirators who conceived a resurrection plot as a way to jumpstart their new religion. But the Bible paints a distinctly different picture. See, on one hand, the followers of Jesus, his closest followers, those disciples, on one hand, they were as surprised as anyone. But on the other hand, they were as scared as anyone. So they were as surprised as anyone. They were doubters. They were skeptics. They never saw it coming. They were not the masterminds behind this plan. But they also were scared. They were running. They were hiding. They were denying Jesus. They were not courageous. They were not brave. This is not an impressive group of men who have sort of gathered around this elaborate lie to advance something. Chuck Colson is a man who was involved in one of the biggest conspiracies in the history of our country, the Watergate scandal. And when he looks at the story of the resurrection, he says, you know why I believe that the resurrection is true? Because these men, for the next 40 years, for the rest of their lives, they kept telling the story everywhere they went, even though it cost every single one of them their lives. So these men were tortured, were beaten, and were killed, and they went to their graves saying, Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. He says, if this was a lie, that means that these 12 men, and, and actually a broader circle in that, kept alive for 40 years. Now, he was part of the cover-up 
at the Watergate scandal. And he said when the Watergate scandal happened, it involved uh, 12 of the most brilliant, smart men. Well, we could debate that, I guess, based on what they did. But 12 powerful men in our country, and they couldn't keep their lie going for even three weeks. And so Chuck Colson says, when I look at what's happened, the impact on the world after this supposed resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, I'm convinced that the, resolution, the resurrection absolutely happened. He says, if the only way that a conspiracy like this works is if all participants maintain a unified front of assurance and competence. He said, the disciples are, seemed utterly incapable of faking a resurrection, risking their lives by stealing a body, nor would it have occurred to them to do so in the depths of their despair. So the most sensible explanation for the radical change from scared, clueless followers to bold, risk-taking world changers who turned the world upside down and who died for their faith and died for the claims that Jesus died and rose again is that Jesus actually did. See, if it was a liar or a hoax, at some point somebody would have bailed. You don't willingly, knowingly give your life for a lie. There's lots of people who do give their lives for lies, but they believe them all the way to the end. But they would have known it was a lie. The disciples would have known that it was a lie, and still they all went to their deaths saying it was true. The best explanation is that they really saw and experienced what we read in the Gospels. And the last thing I want you to notice this morning when we talk about the problem with the resurrection is this. Notice the person in question, who we're talking about. Because the main problem here is not the idea of a resurrection, but the main problem is who we say was resurrected. Who was resurrected. If I said to you that Napoleon died and was resurrected... Who cares? It doesn't mean anything to us. But because it's Jesus Christ, and because of his life, and because of his claims, when we say that he rose from the dead, it makes a big difference. And here's why. Let's pretend we're making two lists. Okay, we're going to make two lists. And on one list, we're going to list the most influential people throughout history who made a real lasting impact on the world, who were highly regarded by people, even if we don't agree with them, even if we believe very differently than them, they were great teachers, they were great people, their fingerprints are on history. Gandhi, Mozart, Da Vinci, Darwin, Aristotle, Aaron Judge. You know, people, people like that, their fingerprints on history. He's a, he's a Yankee player, in case you don't know. Well, no matter what your religious leanings are, if you're going to have any sort of scholarly integrity, you can't leave Jesus Christ off this list. You just can't. I mean, Joel Stein, who writes for Time Magazine, he put together a list like this, and I think he had Jesus second or third, and uh, he said this about the inclusion of Jesus. He said, listen, three billion Christians can't all be wrong. And then he goes, I mean, they could be, but still, if three billion people follow your teachings 2,000 years after you're dead, that's pretty influential, right? So, if you're going to make this list of most influential people in history, Jesus is on the list. Let's make the second list. The second list is, let's talk about all the people in history who claimed to be God. Well, this is a little bit of a harder list to put together because we don't know these people. And you know why you don't know these people? Because they're easily dismissible. They're easily forgettable. They might have a very small cultish following for a very short time, but they're not. Nobody talks about them still. Nobody remembers them still. And do you know why? Because claiming to be God as a human being is the most audacious, ridiculous, insane claim you can make. Hey, just try. Just try it sometime. Just go into work tomorrow and explain to your boss that you are God and see how it, see how it goes. <laughs> when we make these two lists, there's only one name at the top of both lists. Jesus Christ claimed to be God. In many, many ways, he did so. 
So what does all of this mean? If this is true, that Jesus Christ is on the list of most influential people in history and the list of people who claim to be God, what does this mean for you and me this morning? It means this, that Jesus, I know this is a double negative, but it'll make sense. Jesus is not a person to not have an opinion on. Jesus is not a person to go, eh, I don't know. Take him or leave him. It's not really interesting to me. Simply put, his claims and his life are far too radical for people to be in the middle. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. There's no such thing as a casual follower of Jesus. Everyone that was around Jesus when he walked the earth did one of two things. They either fell on their face and worshiped him or they wanted to kill him. Those were the two reactions. So the magnitude of Jesus' claims and the magnitude of his impact on history and on billions and billions of people confronts you with a thought this morning, and it's this. You better not just think that the resurrection isn't a historical event. You better know. You better be sure. The, the onus is on the doubter. And that's the problem with the resurrection. There's so much at stake. There's so much to consider. Is it the greatest hoax or is it the greatest hope? Now, before we go to the next point, if you are here this morning and you're visiting and you're a doubter or a skeptic or a seeker, first off, I'm so grateful that you're here. I doubt that you're convinced by anything you've heard so far, but here's what I hope. I hope that you're willing to consider the resurrection again, to take a closer look. The truth is plenty of people, plenty of people smarter than you and I have poked and prodded at the resurrection. You know, Christianity is the only religion that can be, uh, that can be proven to be false, all you really have to do that can be historically verified, proven to be false. All you have to do is prove that the resurrection of Jesus Christ never happened. And then Christianity is a farce. The whole thing falls apart. And many people have tried to do so. And numbers of those people now are followers of Jesus and have written books about their very journey of setting out to disprove the resurrection only to say, I can't disprove it. There's far too much evidence, not just in the Bible, but outside of the Bible for me to dismiss this. Okay. That's the problem with the resurrection. Secondly, this morning, the purpose of the resurrection. Now, I want to read to you an event that took place before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, just a couple days sooner. It's in verse, verses 20 through 26 of John chapter 12. And uh, it's a Passover week. It's the Holy Week. They're all in Jerusalem. And here's how the story goes. Uh, some Greeks had come to Jerusalem. These Greeks were uh, believing non-Jews. They were Gentiles. They'd come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And they paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. So Philip told his brother Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Jesus replied, Jesus' response is very odd here. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. Or another translation says, the hour has come. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels a plentiful harvest of new lives. Now, at this point, the disciples have to be thinking, Jesus definitely did not hear our question. Like, he, he definitely didn't hear it. I don't know what he's talking about, but this is not the sort of answer that makes any sense. But it makes perfect sense, and we'll look at it. Verse 25, he says, those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. But what in the world is Jesus going on about here? So the Greeks, they come to Jerusalem to worship during the Passover feast, but there's a problem. And here's the problem. There's no way in for them. 
there was a temple in Jerusalem. It was called Herod's Temple, and it was rebuilt. It had been destroyed in the Old Testament. It was rebuilt about 550 years before this story took place, and there actually was a place in the temple for the Gentiles. In fact, it was named after them. It was called the Court of the Gentiles, and it was the outer area of the temple, so it was the very first place to go. But as you can read in other parts of the Gospels, people had filled that area up with money changing tables and they were selling animals and they were doing all sorts of stuff. Basically, they had no place for the Gentiles. The Gentiles couldn't get in. And even though they could get in that far, they couldn't get in as far as they wanted to go. They couldn't really get into where the presence of God was. You know, the Gentiles were, the non-Jews were so looked down on that even unclean priests and Jewish lepers and Jewish women were allowed in further than the Gentiles. They came to worship, but they couldn't. They came for God's presence and to sense God's acceptance and approval, but they couldn't. In one hand, they were so close. And on the other hand, they were so far away. They couldn't get in. And then they say, we want to find Jesus. They go looking for Jesus, somehow sensing he's the way in. Somehow the spirit is already revealing to their heart, Jesus is the one you need if you want to get in. Let me pause at this point in the story and just say this. I believe that part of the human experience and part of being human is that all of us, all of us are always constantly, intuitively looking for a way in, always looking for a way in, a way into the good life or our vision of the good life, whatever that may be for you, a way into freedom, a way into independence, a way into meaning, wanting our lives to matter, a way into purpose. And we use all sorts of things to get in, our careers, success, pleasure, control, respect, relationships. But there's a real danger And the danger is what Jesus references when he says, those who love their life in this world will lose it, verse 25, but those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. When Jesus says, if you love your life in this world, here's what Jesus is saying. This is what it means. It means to treasure your life in an unhealthy way. Specifically, your vision of your own life, your vision of the good life, to treasure it above everything else, even above God. It simply means that you give your heart to whatever you think can get you in. Whatever you look at and you say, that relationship will get me in. I feel like I'm on the outside. I feel like I'm a loser. I feel like I'm a nobody. But that promotion at work, that'll get me in. That experience will get me in. And Jesus is saying here, when you give your deepest heart's affections and attentions to whatever you think can and will get you in, that's loving your life in this world more than God. And what's the danger of doing so? The danger is clear. Jesus says, if you love your life in this world, what? You're going to lose it. Now, is he just talking about our physical lives, that we're going to die? Well, that's not what he's actually talking about there, although that's true. And we know that because somewhere else in Matthew, there's a famous verse where Jesus says, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world but lose their soul? And that word soul is the Greek word psyche. And it's the same thing here. Basically, psyche is what? It's your sense of self. And so here's what Jesus is saying. Let me try and simplify. Jesus is saying this. If you chase after other things that you think will get you in, you're going to lose yourself in the chase. You're going to become a false, counterfeit version of who you were created to be. And in your pursuit to get in, you're going to move further and further away from who he created you to be. Why is that true? Well, it's true, I believe, because our identity, our identity, who we see ourselves to be, is always tangled up in whatever we love most. 
whoever we love most. You are what you love, and you lose your sense of self in your pursuit of the love of other things. You think that it's going to set you free, but it actually enslaves you to itself, okay? And so now, back to the story. The Greeks come looking for a way in, and Jesus' reply seems to have nothing to do with the request. Jesus says, oh, the Greeks want to meet me? The hour has come for me to glorify the Father. Now, what does that mean? Every time in the Gospel of John, when he says the hour, that's a key word in the Gospel of John, he's always talking about the cross. He's always talking about his death. So essentially, here's, what the, here's how the conversation goes. Hey, there's some Greeks here, Jesus, who would love to meet you. Jesus says, it's time for me to die. Now listen, you know a conversation with somebody's not going great when they want to start talking about their death instead of talking with you, right? I mean, that's, that's not a positive sign. What is, Jesus, what is Jesus talking about here? Jesus knows that we all need a way in and that the only way that he can provide a way in for the Gentiles and for the Jews is through his death and through his resurrection. And so Jesus speaks of his own death and resurrection. That's when he says in the verse, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much more, many more kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. And Jesus is saying, unless I die, unless I fall into the ground and die, there's no life for the Gentiles. There's no life for anybody. There's no way in. And so Jesus goes to the cross and he dies, but from his death comes life. So that there's now a way in. And Jesus' death, here's what it does for us. It removes the barrier of sin so that we can be reconciled. We can get in. We can be accepted. We can be approved of we can have access to God. And this is the good news of the gospel, that we have been forgiven of our sins, yes, but also we have been welcomed into the family of God, listen to this part, based on Jesus' work on your behalf and not based on your work on your behalf. By the way, that's really good news because my work on my behalf is pretty crummy. And I don't know about your work on your behalf, but I would bet it's not that different. However, if Jesus only dies, that's not the complete gospel, and that's actually not good news. It's actually pretty crummy news if Jesus just dies. We don't just need the death of Jesus. We also need the life and resurrection of Jesus. One author explains it this way, and this is so helpful. He says, after a criminal does his or her time in jail and fully satisfies the sentence of the judge, the law has no more claims on that person, and they can walk out free, right? The law has no more claims once you've served your sentence. And so Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty of our sins. And because our sin is so great, this was an infinite sentence. Did Jesus satisfy the sentence fully? We know he did. Why? Because on Easter Sunday, he walked out free. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was God's way of stamping the words paid in full right across history so nobody could miss it. And that's the purpose of the resurrection to get us in. And let's close this morning with our third point. So we have the problem with, we have the purpose of, and then lastly, the power in the resurrection. If the resurrection is true, and if it changes our relationship with God, then there's another question we should be asking ourselves. How does the resurrection change our everyday life? Our Monday through Friday, you know, long work days, dirty diapers, relationship dramas, annoying neighbors, cold weathers, aging bodies, boots on the ground, life. Well, the purpose of the resurrection is to get us in. But listen, the power, the power in the resurrection is to get us through. So the purpose is to get us in, but the power is to get us through. Now, if I'm honest with you, for the rest of my life, I'll look back at the year 2017, and I'll remember it as a year that we were just trying to get through. We're just trying to get through. If you don't know me, if you don't know my family story, we lost my dad and we lost my brother last year. 
And when you're walking through that sort of darkness and that sort of grief, you're just trying to get through. I mean, you're just trying to keep going. You're just trying to put one foot in front of the other. And one of the things that I think steadied this church's heart and my family's heart last year was this belief that we celebrate this morning, that not everything is on this side of eternity, that there's so much waiting for us. This is the title page. Uh, uh, This is just the cover and the title page of our story. But chapter one is just begins when we walk into eternity. And once you see the beauty and truth of what Jesus did to get you in, you're going to have the strength to get through anything, to get through anything. The strength to get through comes from having our hearts melted and moved by seeing Jesus' sacrifice and having our hearts filled with awe and wonder by seeing Jesus' power over death itself. But there's, there's something else. There's something else. This matters because you and I have a way in. See, remember I said earlier we're all trying to find a way in? But if what Jesus did really happened, you and I have a way in that has been secured for us, not by things as fragile as my self-esteem, as unreliable as the approval and acceptance of other people, as inconsistent as my self-control and inner strength, as fleeting as health and wealth, and as unforgiving as fame and success. But because our way in has been secured by the unchanging, undeserved, unmerited work of Jesus on our behalf, his life, his death, and his resurrection, then this is what it means for you this morning. Your heart can be steady in any storm. And you can rest and rejoice in all circumstances. You have a way through. When we look at the resurrection, here's what we're reminded. From the absolute worst came the best. From defeat came victory. From despair came hope. And from death came life. Here's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means. That good triumphs over evil. And it always will. That love always finds a way. That light cannot be swallowed by darkness. That death does not have the final say. That someday everything sad will come untrue. And then according to Revelation chapter 21, someday even death itself will die. Jesus, when he walked out of that grave, he struck a fatal blow to death. I remember growing up playing this video game at home, playing this video game at the arcades called Mortal Kombat. Anybody remember that? Mortal Kombat. It was two, uh, two characters fighting each other. And there became a point in the fight where you won. It was over. You'd beaten the person. You beat them. It was over. There's nothing else that could be done. And the other person was just kind of staggering. And then this phrase popped up on the screen and it said, finish him. Finish him. Now, that was your time to do the final move. But even if you walked away and didn't do it, it was over. That guy was going to fall eventually and lose. And where do we live right now in history? Where do we live right now in the story that Jesus is telling? We live, and on the screen it says, finish him. Like, death has already been defeated. Jesus struck a fatal blow to the enemy. He struck a fatal blow to death. The enemy's still on his feet. He's still trying to do what he can. But the end is coming because of the resurrection See, the cross of Jesus keeps us humble, but the resurrection of Jesus keeps us hopeful because we have a way in and we have a way through. Just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song in response, then we're going to go. When my middle daughter, we have three girls, when my middle daughter Caroline turned five, I believe it was a Sunday, and so we had to open all her presents before church, of course. Five-year-olds, they don't wait. Neither do 39-year-olds, but five-year-olds don't wait very well. And... Uh, so we got them all out at the breakfast table and she began to open them. I've shared this story before, but it's always stuck with me. She did something that stunned us. She would take each gift 
And before she opened it, every single time, before she knew what it was, she didn't shake it, she didn't try to figure out what it was, before any of that, she would look at us and she would say, whatever it is, thanks. Whatever it is, thanks. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just hypothetical or theoretical, if it's historical, it doesn't just resurrect you emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, socially, although it has the power to do that, it will resurrect your physical body someday. You'll live again because of your hope in Jesus Christ and you'll have a new body and you'll have a new soul and your spirit will live forever. And what it allows us to do is that whatever tomorrow holds, whatever this week holds, whatever 2018 holds, we can look at it and say, whatever it is, thanks. The tomb's empty, then whatever it is, thanks. There's a way in, there's a way through. And this morning, if you will consider the resurrection, you'll know that it's true. Let's bow our heads and pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would stir our hearts this morning to respond to your word, to your truth as it's been taught. Help us to place our hope and trust in you to get us in, not looking to lesser things to try to get us in, things that will ultimately own us and enslave us and control us and destroy us. You're the one master who died to have us. And so we trust and we place our hope in you.